Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Gifted Place, a professional learning community for gifted education. I'm your host, Sonia Aziz. Joining us today is Dr. Alyssa Brown. Dr. Brown is the director of the Binghamton University Community Schools Regional Network. She also served as a district gifted program coordinator, principal of a specialized high school, and a teacher of gifted learners at the elementary, middle, and high school levels. Dr. Brown has served as an adjunct professor at several universities and is a published author in the field of gifted education. She currently serves as co-president of Gifted NYS, a New York statewide advocacy association for gifted education. Welcome, Dr. Alyssa Brown. Thank you. So before we talk about Gifted NYS, how did you personally get interested in gifted education? So I had an epiphany when I was a young girl. I was probably seven or eight years old. And uh, my older brother was kind of textbook gifted. He, you know, math and science, very nerdy, uh, introvert. And I saw in him how he housed a huge amount of information, but wasn't able to act on it or share it with others or operationalize this. And I thought, oh my gosh, I need to help him with that. <laughs> you know, like, I need to help him and others like him. So I just had this epiphany when I was a young girl that I needed to work with people that are very, very, very bright, like my older brother, and be able to translate or help them early on. I knew that I was going to go in this field. And I don't know if my original goal of you know helping you know children like my older brother, you know, he's a he's now a biomedical engineer. And actually now he's a CEO of a, a tech company and he's got a couple of patents and you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if my original goal held out, but it was to really think about these kids and, and what they have to offer and how can I help them in a lot of ways, in a policy development way, in a teacher, you know, teaching teachers, building their capacity way to like then have them um, help us. When you're thinking about your, your brother, when you first started to help him, Do you think about the way students were perceived by teachers at that time? I mean, you know, he was um, at that time it was he was he fell under the conception of a a nerdy kid, you know, glasses, pocket, you know, the nerdy. Uh, He was an introvert, um, didn't have a lot of friends there. I mean, there wasn't a lot of people that that thought at his level. He didn't have likability peers. You know, whether or not I helped him, I doubt it. You know, I'm his younger sister, so I'm sure there was no helping going on from his perspective. But I mean, his being who he was informed my decision about my trajectory. Can you share a little bit about the mission of Gifted NYS? Yeah. So a couple of years ago, and, and since then, we've developed DEI positions and other positions, but One is to increase awareness and understanding of gifted in 2E, twice exceptional. One second mission or second prong is to promote federal, state, and local policies and initiatives that support gifted in 2E. And the third is to create an inclusive community statewide. So I think those hold up. Right now, most of our membership are parents, which I think is really interesting. Not It's not that it's interesting. It doesn't surprise me. 
mm-hmm. because parents are seeking, you know, where's my support network? What do I do with this kid? How do I talk to schools? You know, where do I find resources? So was that always the goal to target parents or was it? No, I don't think so. The two founding members that started and incorporated and bylaws and the whole thing with were two parents. And both of them have twice exceptional children, boys, but boys, there's a proclivity for boys to be too identified as two E versus girls. Mm-hmm. And I be just, I don't know if it's the way boys present themselves, you know, I'm not sure. And I think that comes down to correctly identifying students, but New York doesn't have the mandate to identify or serve gifted learners, nor state funding for gifted education. Why do you think that is? So I love this question. And I, I mean, my first response is, I don't know. Mm-hmm. My second response, as I reflect on it, having been at Hunter for 10 years and, and now I'm at Binghamton University, I think it's possible. I mean, one of my assumptions of why that hasn't happened and gotten traction when other states around us, New Jersey is a recent example, passed something in 2020. Connecticut still, they've got a little bit on the books, but not much. Massachusetts has nothing on the books. So, you know, some of it, I think, is the Northeast. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, our cluster of states around us, do, do, Pennsylvania does. Gifted is up under special ed. Um, and they have, gifted kids have GIEPs. But I think some of the reason that it's possible we don't is because because of the specialized schools in the city that have international acclaim. I mean, Bronx Science, Stuy, you know, I think there's an assumption in Albany or wherever that, oh, we don't have to have a mandate because there be these kids are being served. I mean, there's an entrance criteria, there's admissions criteria, pretty steep, and they're being served. But not statewide, as you know. I mean, in the city, yes. And that's, but, but the city is the largest school system in the country. The city is the largest population center in New York, in New York state. So I think there must have been some underlying assumptions around they're being served in the city. So we don't need a mandate. It's happening. There's a school of thought that gifted education can be considered elitist. And it's interesting to me because in saying so, it automatically assumes that gifted students fit a specific description. Right. Twice twice exceptionality demonstrates that gifted students don't fit all the same mold. Right, right. And some struggle immensely with various challenges, challenges that are faced across socioeconomic levels. So how can we disrupt negative connotations such as elitist associated with gifted students and their families? Well, as you know, gifted gifted education is not elitist, just like special education. You know, you're you're serving, you're meeting the needs of an exceptional group of children on either end of the spectrum. And even within a gifted even if I, if you and I had a gifted classroom, it's a heterogeneous group. Right. You know, you've got everything from, you know, gifted students. There's, again, a misconception that if you're gifted, you're gifted across the board. You're not. Gifted kids have to have a tendency to be gifted in an area in a specific, specific content domain like math mm-hmm. um, or reading precocities or, you know. So they're not gifted across the board. So they differ in terms of their level of you know, their strengths and their expertise, as well as 
culturally diverse, linguistically diverse, economically diverse, you know, there's diversity there. And then even in terms of ability, Elliot Eisner, who I think he's now at Stanford, but he had this wonderful quote about in a gifted, you know, in a gifted population, you, you have an elevated mean, but an increased variance. Mm-hmm. So his point is that a gifted classroom is, is as diverse or variant as a, as a gen ed classroom. Right. So in a gen ed classroom, you might have non-readers to readers, you know, gifted classroom, they're all reading, but you have profoundly gifted, you know, students and high achievers. So I guess the elitist comes from, oh, these kids are fine. They, you know, they'll make it on their own. They come from wealthy families. They're white and Asian. But if you look at their behaviors and their, you know, their abilities, they're as diverse in every way as any other kid. Is the New York public school system equipped to serve as an inclusive environment for gifted learners? Because there are so many variations. So is the New York, New York, not New York City, New York public school system equipped to serve an inclusive environment? I mean, it would have to be inclusive from a curricular standpoint, mm-hmm. you know, content and curriculum. It would have to be inclusive from a pedagogical approach from, a, mm-hmm. you know, it'd have to be inclusive from a mindset. So I don't, I mean, there's so many things that go into that. Currently, they're not equipped. Could they be equipped? Sure. In your opinion, what would that take? I mean, it would take having a vast array of resources available. So if I'm reading books, I need books with all types of protagonists and all varying culture and and, language and, and books that range from, you know, Stephen King, like adult reading material to, you know, and different themes. And then I would need, you know, a trained professional teaching force that looks at these kids as, you know, as needing scaffolding up. So, you know, the teacher prep piece, the curriculum piece, and even the leadership piece that these kids deserve. I mean, you know, you think about a FAPE, a free appropriate public education, no, you know, no child left behind. If all, if every student succeeds act, every student, no child left behind. Like, you know, even at the federal level with language and policy, th- there's a whole group of students that are not included. This group. So, I mean, there would be policy changes, teacher prep, teacher capacity, curricular changes, all of that to be, to think about inclusion. Would it it's simply- not just grouping the kids together. That's not inclusive. You know, it's more than that. Yeah. Having been a principal and now I work across nine school systems and I'm in communication with, you know, superintendents. And if the state department, if NYSED says do this, they'll do it. If NYSED, you know, if there's no guidance or if there's no legislative or no commissioner, state commissioner's memo. Yeah. So a mandate's needed. I mean, ideally a funded mandate is the best, but gosh, something on the books, right? Something that says you must identify and serve gifted kids. The national average for identified gifted students is almost 7%. And only 1.7% of all New York students are identified. Minority populations 
include 0.9% Black, 0.6% Hispanic, and only 1.1% Native American are identified as gifted. So the number of gifted students with disabilities, like 2E, is not even tracked. So in your opinion, what's the biggest hurdle to closing that gap? And how do we navigate towards a middle ground that honors the needs of gifted students while making the process fair and equitable? Okay, so, you know, unpacking this question, the nationwide average, those are for students that are formally identified. The nationwide average of gifted students is much larger than 7%, but kids that are formally identified, and you know that in some school districts, they don't identify till third grade. Mm -hmm. And then those kids, you know, they're in there till fifth and maybe, or eighth grade at the most, you know, and then they're, I don't know, not de-identified. They just don't, you know, they think that high school takes care of it. I think it's a, a deflated, I think it's a low, this is a conservative figure. But the point of the question is around, um, you know, how do we think about gifted in a broader sense and more equitable? And, you know, the big thing like in the city is that the student demographics, the, the gifted programs and schools don't reflect the demographics in those schools don't reflect the demographics in the city. And this would be true across the country. Many of the gifted programs or the students in those programs don't reflect the diversity or the demographics of the community. So I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I'll start with identification. If you think about identification as a process, which includes testing and teacher recommendations and I don't know, a matrix and a cut score and a, you know, parent consent and, you know, like all these processes. If the first domino to start it is teacher recommendation, that's a problem. That's immediately going to increase that gap because without training Mm -hmm. teachers think that the gifted child is the compliant, sweet, dutiful, turn in the work kind of child and not the child that asks incessant questions and is unorganized and can't find their homework. And, you know, is constantly, Oh, 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 you know, they think, you know, so one of the gaps is, the identification system or process and what starts it. And, you know, if the first step in that dominoes is universal screening, you've got a much better chance at closing that gap. So um, identification is a hurdle because of the process of it. And a lot of teachers that I talk to, they say, Oh, I don't even, I don't even start meeting my kids until October or whatever. Cause they're spending the whole month of September testing and, you know, talking to parents and, you know, you know, so, so that's one of the gaps. And then, the, and then at what point does that start? So if they don't start till third grade, be, and most schools choose to do that because that's the first grade, the first grade where in which kids are do the state test and mm-hmm. they have some data, you know, kids develop differently. And that could be a hurdle too, just the developmental trajectory of kids. Um, I think another hurdle in that gap is parent knowledge. I don't believe, I mean, I, and I probably can back it up with facts. I mean, there's just no way that there's not as many gifted kids in the Bronx as there are in Manhattan or Brooklyn or Queen. Like, no, I don't buy it. But what's happening is those parents don't know, like they don't know there's a testing window or they're like, they don't know the questions to ask and they don't know who they should call and they don't know, oh, I have to go into this portal and, 
request for testing? Like, what does that even mean? And so, you know, one, one hurdle is, 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 is parent knowledge and, and parent access mm-hmm. and, and um, understanding. So there's a lot of pieces and um, I don't know. And I, you know, and possibly teacher perception or there, there are ways to make the process more fair and equitable, but again, it's a multi-prong uh, approach. It's access, doing a evaluation every year, mm-hmm. not, you know, at kin- like in the city at kindergarten or at the high school. Like, you know, if I move into the city, if my parents move and I'm in third grade, I'm eight years old and I moved to the city and I was identified in Florida, there's also no reciprocity. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't guarantee me that I'm just going to go to a gifted school. Like, so all of that, you know, I go to the city, I'm in third grade and they're, oh, no, no, can't be identified or we can't test you until, I don't know, middle school or, or, you know, entrance to high school. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, reci- the policy, you know, reciprocity on that would be even in Long Island where you are, you know, Herricks and Mineola and Garden City and Massapequa. Like if I'm gifted in Mineola and I move over to Massapequa, I mean, got to meet their criteria. Yeah. Then Gary, Timmy, you know, so a lot, a lot of, a lot of things that need to be in place. So I want to go back for a second about yeah. identification with just getting uh, tested once. Is that enough or is that something that needs to be done? Because I hear that a lot, like, you know, the, the child's tested in kindergarten and then that's it. Then, mm-hmm. you know, they kind of, they're on this trajectory how important is it to just let them go and, or does it have value to kind of, you know, at some midpoint say, you know what, maybe we test them again. So New York city and the way that they do that mm-hmm. is atypical of everywhere else in the country. So in the city and perhaps on long Island, maybe not as much because mm-hmm. it's not part of the five boroughs and it's not under DOE. But in the city, they test, as you know, four-year-olds mm-hmm. for, for kindergarten slots. And then once gift, gifted, always gifted kind of thing. Anywhere else, anywhere else in the state, if they if they have such a thing. But certainly out, you know, Fairfax County, which is Washington, D.C., and Montgomery County is uh, right there. Any other state, any other school system, they, first of all, they don't touch testing kindergarten. They usually wait until first or second grade. And then there's an annual testing cycle. So new kids could come in at any point. Some school, like st- the state of Tennessee, Pennsylvania, Florida, some states where gifted is up under special ed at the state level, they do a third year reeval, which is like a special ed model, you know, right. third year reevaluation because gifted at the state level is up under special ed. So Tennessee, Florida, Pennsylvania, and there's some other states where it's a third year reval. But most school systems wait, you know, they'll do it at the end of the year or at the beginning of the year. And then the next year, um, the kids that are in it stay and then they add new kids. Um, but then, and then they also have an exit policy. Right. So, and it's really around, are those services, can the kids get, get their needs met in a gen ed classroom? I mean, is that rigorous enough? Or if if their needs can be met at gen ed classroom with differentiation, then mm-hmm. they don't need a specialized whatever. And in places like Fairfax County, they have a continuum of services mm-hmm. from less intensive to the most intensive. 
So they'll have, they kind of have tiers of identification. So mm-hmm. if you meet a certain threshold, you get differentiation in the regular classroom. If you meet another threshold, you get the differentiation in the, in the regular classroom and a pullout. Mm-hmm. If you meet a th- Another threshold, you get cluster grouping, pull out, blah, blah, blah. If you meet the highest threshold, you're at a gifted center. You're at a specialized school. So, yeah, New York, the whole thing uh, on identifying kids in kindergarten is is really an outlier. It's an Mm -hmm. anomaly. It's not done around the country. The only exception I would say around early identification and why we should do it I mean, one school of thought of why we shouldn't mm-hmm. is that are we picking up, if we test four-year-olds, are we really picking up innate abilities, you know, nature versus nurture, or are we picking up an enriched home life? Are they in a home life where they're read to and they travel and the conversation is at a high level? Or is so, so it's not it's not the kid, it's really the environment. Or are we picking up, and that's why some people wait till later. The only exception to that, I would say, and this is, comes out of Donna Ford's research at Ohio State, and I saw Donna um, at the conference. So she's done research around this early identification, and the only time that she says where it's like paramount and 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 we need to do it is for African American males, because she said if you want to increase diversity with that population you need to identify early, but other populations, not so much. And that brings me to your point where you said that one of the prongs was parent awareness. And if a parent, right. So even if you think socioeconomically, if you have parents who are, you know, they don't have access to the portal or they don't even know how to navigate that, that kind of window for opportunity to help young African-American boys is gone. Yeah. I had a, a couple of years ago, I had a, a woman in my graduate classes at Hunter going for her um, certificate gifted extension. And she was Greek, Greek, and she has three kids. And she said that an email came she, and she was just saying, here's the parent perspective. She said, an e-, you know, Dr. Brown, the email came to me and in the subject line, it said RFT. Mm-hmm. And then it, it said, Dear parent slash guardian, something about an RFT was request request for testing, but something, Mm -hmm. and it was just like a a sentence. You may request testing for your child for gifted services, but like there was no con, like she, she didn't even know what, what, like, but she said, you know, uh, she speaks fluent English and, and she was even like, what does that even mean? And, and what, who, how did I get this email and where do I go? And what do I, you know, but she said it just, it, the D it's just not transparent. There's no parent education around it. There's nothing in the doctor's offices. There's nothing in the community centers. Like even for teachers, when I think about teachers, not every teacher is able to, you know, determine or identify a gifted student, especially when you're thinking about behaviors with boys with minority students, yeah. teachers very 
quickly assume that it's just, you know, behavioral, it's coming from some negative something. Like gifted's not even on the radar at that no, point no, no. because of misconceptions. So the student runs the risk of being overlooked or misidentified. So in your opinion, what should training for teachers focus on so that students can be identified not only just earlier, but in a more fair and equitable way? Intensive teacher training. I mean, they need to understand characteristic gifted, different types of giftedness, how it manifests itself in the classroom. I um, interviewed a bunch of gifted kids in, in New Jersey and um, was doing some focus groups. And this one boy, he was third, eight years old. He's in third grade. And, you know, I'm, you know, asking him questions and all of the group questions. And at the very end, and I'm typing it up, you know, and I'm reading the back. This is what you said. Da, da, da. And at the very end, I said, is there anything else you want me to put in the report? Is there anything else you want your teachers or your, the leadership here, the principals and the, and the um, district leadership to know about you? And he said, please let them know that just because we're gifted doesn't mean we're, we're always going to act. What do you say? We're always going to be the the best behaved. Mm-hmm. And so I like yeah. <laughs> typed that in and showed it to him. And he said, yes, thank you. And I said, it's going in the report. I'm not using your name. I'm just saying a student said, right. please understand that just because we're gifted doesn't mean we're the best behaved. So yeah, some deep teacher training around these mm-hmm. kids and some of the there are some characteristics that emerge early, like sense of fairness emerges. Mm-hmm. One of the first characteristics to emerge, even at, as young as three years old. And then, you know, global thinking and, and memory for some kids, highly verbal, their ability to think across and connect discrete pieces of information. And so, you know, training on that, also training on and how diverse these kids are. Mm-hmm. Like it's not, you know. It's not, they're not going to make straight A's. Don't assume that these kids are going to make straight A's, you know, or don't assume they're going to turn in their homework if they find it boring. They may not finish, you know, they're, they may just make a pattern out of the test you gave them because it's just not relevant to them. So yeah, deep teacher training and even work with teachers on how do you collaborate with families? Families know a lot about their kids. I mean, there's things their kids do on the weekends, you know, whether they play an instrument or, or they read voraciously, like that information is really useful. So not to see parents as adversaries, but to see them as advocates and as partners. Point of contention is when parents come and say, you know, well, my child can do X, Y, and Z at home, but then when the teacher doesn't see it, and then it's just kind of like, you know, they start butting heads. Well, or, or there's an assumption on teachers that, you know, every parent thinks their kid is gifted. And, and, and you know, there's a lot of parents, they, they're very tentative about saying anything because they're scared. And they're afraid that their kid is going to get penalized. I've had parents, many parents tell me that if I, I'm afraid to say to the teacher, you know, provide my child more challenge, they're bored or, you know, anything because they take that as a threat or as a negative. And then they say, oh, I'll show you. And they slap them with more work. And, you know, they take the joy out of learning and, you know, remove. And so a lot of parents are not, they're not aggressive or proactive or advocates because they're afraid. They're afraid their kids are going to get penalized if they say anything. 
because there's so many neurodivergent learners, how feasible is it to have this one standardized IQ test? Like, is it possible to like, you know, have a different way of thinking about how we're identifying? Like, should that even be a piece? I do think it should be a piece. Um, And if you look at the state of the state reports that NAGC does, which is where they do a, I think it's every four years, they Mm -hmm. ask all the state directors of gifted, you know, what do you use for identification? You know, what are your services? And, you know, they compile this state of the state reports. Every single, I think, 100%, more than 95% of districts around the country, they use some sort of ability measure. It could be group, a group test, or it could be individually, like a Stanford Binet. A lot of them use a nonverbal, like an Aguilera or an, you know, OLSAT, or even the old, the old test, which is called the Ravens. So, mm-hmm. but they all use some sort of standardized, nationally normed ability measure. Then, I mean, that's like the first thing they, everybody seems to use and where it comes to play in the process. Like, is it the first thing you do or is it just part of the data you collect, but they all use something. Then several, most of them use like an achievement score. And usually they pull from the state test on that, which is okay, but it's, it's normed. It's grade level normed. It's not showing off, off level or, you know, uh, off level norms. And then a lot of them use teacher recommendations or parent recommendation, you know, other multiple data sources. But I do think um, testing provides, I mean, the whole reason a test is nationally normed, you know, it's been, it's gone through a rigorous process and mm-hmm. tens of thousands of students and they throw out questions that are not valid and it goes through re- revisions. And so it's an objective measure of something. Is it the end all be all? No. And it's one data point. Right. But not to have something like, I mean, to, to skew it, you know, you want qualitative and quantitative, you know, you want some teacher recommendations because they see kids differently, but you, you want something like a test to like balance it out. So yeah, I think they're very relevant. And I think often as in the case in New York city, they blame the test for not allowing for diversity because they put the, oh, the test is not picking up diverse kids. Instead of thinking about, well, are there other tests like nonverbal? Are there, you know, what else can we do? Oh, let's just throw out the test or let's just shut down all the programs, you know, more, put a moratorium on. So yeah, I, I think IQ and ability test measures have a place. They shouldn't be the only source of data, but they should be a source. They're pretty robust in that your IQ doesn't change up or down a little bit, but it's pretty stable. I do see parents who think that maybe, you know, their child has testing anxiety, like severe yeah. testing anxiety, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that a standardized test might not be the best tool, yeah. or you're saying the socioeconomic yeah. issues. The language, you know, puts people at it. Right. Are you testing the content, you know, is there content validity or is it a readability? Mm -hmm. You know, are you testing a student's ability to read and decipher the question? So I do think it has a place. You know, I don't know how, I mean, I wouldn't be able to tell you how much should it be weighted or, you know, but in context of other things, it's fine. 
most public schools in New York offer gifted and talented programs as part-time pull-out or after-school yeah. programs. But being gifted in 2E is not like a switch that can be turned on or off. So mm-hmm. how can schools better serve the needs of gifted and 2E students more consistently? So what happens with 2E kids, I mean, there's a couple of things that I've seen happen across this country. One is if a child is identified with a learning disability, there's a federal mandate for that and there's funding and there's IEPs, there's all these things in place. I mean, and this teachers will tell you this at at these 2E schools, often they focus on just the the remediation and the intervention piece, and they do nothing around the strengths. It's a deficit lens and not an asset-based or a strength lens. And so one thing is to really see these two pieces equitably. Like, how do I really figure out the kid's strengths and let them fly? And then how do I remediate and scaffold, you know, for the learning disability? So one thing is that they're not right now, the way they're being played out is, is inequitable in the classroom. They're really, these teachers are just trying to like focus, you know, remediate the, and they're not, they forget about the the gifted piece of, of these kids in some States where it is mandated and there's like a head count for gifted and, and kids with disabilities in some States, you are not allowed to, and there's funding, you can't double dip. So what that means is you can be duly identified, but you can only be on one head count for the state. So I could be gifted to E, you know, I could be gifted with a learning disability and reading and I could be served mm-hmm. for both of my, for that, but I can only be on one head count because I can only get one. My district will only get money from one source for me. And you always get more money for special ed. Always hundred mm-hmm. percent. No exception. So I'm always going to be on a special ed head count in those states and and my school will get money. And so one of the inequities is, is to look at that in the state, like, do they have a head count for gifted and and 2E and what are the funding mechanisms and can you be duly served, but only solely identified on Mm -hmm. head count? So that's um, something that needs to be looked at for these kids. And then the other thing is you, as you know, because of your research is um, there's like, there's more than four categories, but there are two E kids there. Sometimes the gifts will mask that, you know, the kids have learned strategies and self-regulation and they understand because they're insightful and they know that, and they teach themselves strategies. So sometimes their gifts mask their, their disability and they look average. Sometimes, you know, so they're really tricky because some, you know, or sometimes they shut down because they just get so frustrated because they can't articulate or in often with these kids, they read at a high level, but they can't write, Mm -hmm. you know, the writing slows them down. And so they learn to kind of hide that. So two E kids are really, there's no metric right now around the country to identify for two E. They will either do, if they're going to refer them for special ed, then they're going to do a Woodcock Johnson. And, you know, there's certain tests for learning disability. And then, and 
but they might have a really high IQ if they do a Koget or an Olset or a, a Slauson, you know, they're, they're going to come out high, but then they do a achievement battery and, and they're going to see this like range. And then they, you know, and then, and then without teacher training and without, you know, they don't know what to do with these kids. So two is tough. What is the biggest thing that you would like to see happen for New York? in the next five years? Yeah, well, I, would, I, I definitely want to see like some sort of mandate because I think that will change the, the landscape. Some sort of mandate to identify and serve. Like so, so there's states like Ohio where there's a mandate to identify, but not to serve. So uh, Ohio spends so much money and time on testing, 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 testing. And then the kids jump through all these hoops. They get slapped with the label gifted. And then they're in the Gen A classroom because there's no mandate to serve, you know. So then you have a state like I, Connecticut's changed recently. But prior to the recent legislation, they had a mandate to serve, but not identify. So they define, you know, if you're not, well, who are we serving? Oh, we'll just serve every, you know. Like, so I would like to see a, a mandate to identify and serve in New York. And I'd like to see it funded. Because you can have an unfunded mandate and then it's on the local districts to do, you know, the funding. And I think it's achievable. I, I don't know why it hasn't gotten traction. So, yeah, a mandate to identify and serve and funding. And then I would like to see, that's one piece, that's for the gifted program, the K-12 program. And then I'd like to see in the higher ed piece, just like they've added, you know, literacy requirements that you have to be certified. I mean, you, you know, you, you can't go through undergraduate or a graduate program out something ungifted. I'd like to see. And some states have a minimum. Like if you're teaching gifted kids, you only need a couple of classes. And then if you're doing like gen ed, you know, differentiation in the classroom. But if you're going to do a pullout or if you're going to do self-contained, then you need like a endorsement or a license or a certificate or, you know. So I'd like to see a requirement for teacher teacher licensure, teacher certification. Teachers, where they're doing special ed. Like yeah. I remember in my program, we did special Nothing. ed. Gifted was never no, even. Never it. even, not even one lecture on gifted. Right. When, when I was at Hunter and I was in the um, department of special ed and I just, you know, at the meetings, I would say to the whole team, like there's 20 of us, I don't even know. And I would say, I'm happy to come into any of your classes, any point at time, and do, you know, gifted 101 for your students. So in, out of 50, I'll say 50, although there's like territories and stuff. So out of 50 states, oh gosh, over 40 have a mandate either to identify or serve. And out of the 40 that have a mandate, 25 have a mandate to do identify and serve. So there's Mm -hmm. like 40 that have something. 25 of those have both. And out of the 25 that have both, only 14 have funding. So we're, we don't have, we have a definition. That's it. You know, it has to be broad enough where it would would fit the whole state, but you know, a broader stroke and assembly has all this stuff in it. And when it gets to the section on identification, like it says, it's too prescriptive. You have to have two standard deviations above. You have to, you have to, you know, Instead of or, or, or. You can identify, you can use 
a mix of measures. You can do this or this or this or this, but you have to identify however you choose to do that. I wonder if there's value in having something a little bit more standardized in terms of like a, a some sort of rubric or something that that could be not maybe so prescriptive that it's so narrow, yeah. Yeah. but I wonder if there's any value in that. South Carolina has a statewide identification mandate and you have to fall in one of three buckets. Mm-hmm. So you can be intellectually gifted and score on a IQ test in whatever, I don't know, whatever the threshold is, 90%, 95%. The second bucket is you can be identified gifted with a lower score on IQ, but then they add the achievement and the teacher recommendations. So like one is like IQ, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. if you get X amount, you're in. Second dimension is like IQ achievement, teacher recs get in. And the third dimension is performance-based, no testing. And it's um, trained people come in and they do like manipulatives with kids and spatial stuff. And you can get picked up on that, on that dimension. So there, there's models out there. Right. And South Carolina went to that because OCR, OCR, Office of Civil Rights, slapped them with a lawsuit. And it was because the kids in the gifted programs in South Carolina did not match the demographics in South Carolina. So they re- revised, they had a state, originally their identification system was one dimension and you have to do this and this and you have to score X period. And it doesn't matter if you're in Charleston or Columbia. And so they then went to these three dimensions and the, the performance-based dimension was really for the nonverbal or ELL kids or twice exceptional kids that didn't test well, but they could display, you know, their spatial prowess. Yeah. That's so important to be able to give them that. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate any other way I can help you or be a resource to you. Let me know. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Have a good evening. To learn more about gifted education in New York, log on to giftednys.org. Thank you for listening and for being part of the gifted place learning community.